I'm Steve McLeod and this is Bootstrapped. It's a podcast for people running bootstrapped software companies or wanting to run one. I run two bootstrapped software products, Feature Upvote, which lets your customers vote on ideas to improve your product, and Sabre Feedback, which offers a feedback widget you can add to your website. Follow along as I learn from talking to other bootstrappers and experts, and just maybe you'll learn something too. Today I'm joined by, and this is going to be hard to pronounce, Paldi Gulitzoni, founder of Balsamic. How was that, Paldi? Very good, very good, Steve. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show, Paldi. In fact, when I launched this new iteration of the podcast, you were the first person, the very first person to contact me and wish me congratulations. And I knew then that I wanted to have you on the show someday. It's taken 18 months, but we're finally here. So again, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Paldi, do you want to give us the quick version of what Balsamic is and how it came to be? Just the quick story for now. Very quick, because I think that your audience knows about Balsamic already, but we are a low-fidelity wireframing tool. So it's useful to sketch user interfaces. So if you're making a website or an app for your desktop or for mobile, you want to sketch the key screens so that you can uh, work on them with the developers and the designers and the potential customers in order to make them as easy as possible to use. And you do all this before you start coding when it's a lot cheaper to do. We are a bootstrapped company. We've been around uh, for uh, 12 years. We've grown organically. We are now 33 people spread around uh, Europe and the US. Uh, We've been remote since the beginning. And last year, we had about $7.3 million in revenue. $7.3 million in revenue. Do you break that down into profit or that's like an internal matter? No, uh, I don't really know exactly yet because we still have to calculate it for last year. But it's usually around, you know, 25% profit, something like that. Can I ask what you do with that profit? We give 20% back to the employees. We donate 3% of it to charity. And again, they're decided by the employees. And we uh, leave uh, a big, big chunk of it in the company in case there's a rainy day. And we have a formula to calculate that. And then with the rest, I take it as dividends. Okay. And you're the sole owner. Yes. My mother actually owns 1% (laughs) of Balsamic because of uh, technicality of the Italian system. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, that's nice that you're looking after your mother anyway in the business. Well, I mean, she did give us her apartment rent-free for four years when I moved back from uh, California. So, Okay. So really, she was an investor? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that 1% means she gets 1% of the dividends, I guess? Yes. (laughs) That's That's really nice. Hey, what charities do your team usually pick to donate the 3% to? Oh, it's all over the place because there's 33 of us and each of us can pick two charities for their uh, part of the nation. And so every year we we have around 60, you know, uh, different charities. So it really goes, it's the spectrum, anything you can think of, really. 
And do you do that silently or do you make a point of mentioning on your website the charities you've donated to? No, we, yeah, this charity is not something to brag about, I don't think. I mean, you just yeah. do it because it's the right thing to do. No, I mean, sometimes we have highlighted some uh, charity recipients just to give them a more spotlight, but we've done it maybe a couple of times years ago. Okay. Okay. That's, that's really nice. Yeah. That's kind of my approach to charity as well. Like if you give like, don't use it as something to embiggen yourself. It's just something you do. It's just the right thing to do. Another thing that we're looking into is dedicating some parts of the profit to lessening our environmental impact. It's not easy to do right now, but we were just looking at the thing that Stripe just launched and that looked interesting. That's where they use the money to fund some sort of carbon Carbon reclaim, not, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ed, who's frequently on the co-host, is part of that program and speaks highly of it. This kind of got waylaid already in the introduction. So Peldy speaks frequently at conferences, and you can find several podcast interviews where he tells the full Balsamic story, listeners. So we're not going to go into the whole history of how Balsamic came to be in this episode. If you do want to hear that, an interview I really recommend is the Indie Hackers podcast with Peldy. I think Cortland did a really good job of really getting that, those, getting you to recall those initial days. So that's a great one. Given that, for today's episode, I'm going to use this as a chance to ask you, Pauli, some questions that intrigue me about the way you run Balsamic. So are you ready for the interrogation? Please, yes, bring it on. Okay, I've got the, the bright light shining at you. First, I want to talk about your allergy to analytics, assuming this still exists. So there's another podcast I listened to a few years ago, Starting and Sustaining, and you were on that. And you said that, and I quote from their transcription, you said, we track nothing. We have analytics hooked up on the website. I think it's been three years since I looked at it for five seconds. We don't track downloads. We don't track anything. The only thing we track is revenue and profits. Is that still more or less true? Yes, very much so. We do actually use uh, Google Analytics now every six months. <laughs> every six months, we review the minimum uh, system requirements for our apps. So minimum browser versions and minimum uh, OS versions so that we don't have to support things that nobody uses. And so every six months, I have to go in and, and look at the last six months, how many, you know, Chrome version X did we have? Can we drop it? Yes or no? So I spend a, I spend a good uh, five minutes in Google Analytics uh, once every six months. Okay. Other than that, I have heard rumors that some of my teammates uh, look at analytics behind my back, but I don't encourage that. In fact, I was this close from removing it altogether from our website uh, recently. But yes, no, we don't, we don't really, we're not a data-driven company. We are values-driven, we are conversation-driven. That seems quite contrarian. No, that seems very contrarian because almost every piece of startup advice, especially for founders looking for doing marketing better, is that you have to measure things, measure, measure, measure. And you've gone completely away from that. I, I can't even imagine running my own business without having my head in Google Analytics on a regular basis. What do you do there? I'm so curious. What do you do? <laughs> well, this is the thing is I probably can't even tell you. I what do you, you, let me ask you an even more pointed question. What do you do there that is more effective than having a one-hour conversation with a customer? 
Ah, uh, but are those the two things <laughs> that have to be separate? Can't one do both? Well, I mean, okay, what do you do that's useful when you look at analytics? I check which channels are bringing in customers. We've been trying, for example, SEO, and I want to see if we're actually getting organic traffic. And if not, I know we've got a problem. If we are, then I see which articles are getting the, the traffic so I can improve those articles using the logic that the good articles should be made even better because obviously they're the ones that are working. And then I look at which ones we can scrap because they turn out to be a waste of our time. I look to see if there's been a sudden drop or increase in traffic and then try and work out what that is because it could indicate a problem in the business or an opportunity in the business. Now, I am overselling this. I don't do this as much as, uh, like you put me on the spot here and I've had to justify it and I've come up with these things. But if I'm honest, I don't actually do this stuff quite so much. Often it's just a way to pass time. You know, the problem with the business, right? Wouldn't you hear about the problem another way before you look at analytics? I mean, I guess it's, mm. let me put it this way. Instead of cultivating a whole data generating machine, we cultivated our a very tight feedback loop with our community and our customers. So if there's something wrong, we hear about it one minute after we ship it. I mean, it's obvious. Or... You know, people just tell us when, whenever there's a problem. We have super fast support feedback loop too. And it's rich feedback, right? Mm. It's not like, oh, I think you have a problem. They tell you, somebody's using your logo on this page. Are you sure? That, you know, like they tell uh-huh. you very specific things. So what are those channels that people contact you via? Is it just email or, or Twitter? Many years at the beginning, my approach was to be everywhere, be on every social media channel, be on every Slack community, be, you know, well, this was before Slack existed, but on all the forums and, and just uh, back in the day, we had RSS and uh, we could follow everything uh, fairly, fairly easily. And the idea was, we'll come to you, you just complain about us whichever way you want, and we will, we will notice and we will reply. Over time, social media has consolidated a lot. I mean, at the beginning, we were on Friendster, Friend Feed. I don't even remember what it was called. We were on all these different social networks that were, you know, big in the in late 2010s. But then they sort of consolidated. And over time, we have given preference to our emails. We use Help Scout. And so we bring everything in there. We bring Twitter mentions in there we bring youtube comments in there because we have a pretty active youtube channel and on our website we mostly send people to email we we still have a very active discord community just like the one in uh, for this uh, podcast and so so that's also i'd say primarily it's email and forums okay. and then twitter is, is a third way Okay, so email is the thing that just never dies. Uh, we were using it 20 years ago to run our businesses and we use it today. Email Everything else, friends, that comes and goes. Email is great. The only problem with email is that when you answer, nobody else can find that answer in the future, mm. right? Uh, forums are better because people don't even write you. They just find their answer right away, right? Yeah. But email is more private. It's more intimate. You know, you can share your uh, your licensing code in there you know it's just uh it's very good in many ways yeah i used to use a forum for my previous product and that i sold a a year ago and the problem i had with the forum is that the first days or weeks or months were great 
but then the content gets stale and people are finding the wrong answers to questions because things do change. And I never really solved that problem. And then Facebook became a big thing and people stopped using our forum and they just went onto Facebook anyway. So I closed it down eventually. Yeah, you have to guard the forums for sure. You have right. to continuously trim the and update the answers and close some things and, and add solve the, to the subject uh-huh. of something. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Anything you do, any one of these new mm, support forums or channels, it's a, it's a job you're bringing on, an ongoing job for yourself or someone on your team. Yeah, but it's basically part of your website. It's basically yeah. uh, the self-help or community help uh, part of the website. I would say that it's still worth uh, having them. So, Pell, do you tell me how does Bozomic get new customers? You said, like, your marketing brings in people and you're not using analytics to know which marketing's working. So how do you get new customers? I don't know precisely because we don't track anything. We think it's mostly word of mouth. One of our company goals is be so good they can't ignore you. Uh, for those of you who can't see this, Paldi's just pointed to a sign behind his head on our video that says exactly that. Be so good they can't ignore you. Right. So we are uh, product driven. So if the product is good, people will come. If, if the product is so good that is the best for what it does and it's so clearly positioned, people uh, do come. And, and don't tell me this is uh, bizarre because this is how <laughs> Apple became uh, Apple, you know. It's all product first. Apple is exceptional. I guess that's also the point you're making is be exceptional. But it seems kind of along the lines of people who believe in build it and they will come, which a lot of people, when they build their first product, you get a shock to discover that nobody comes unless you actually do something about it. Well, let me put it this way. We consider everything we do marketing, meaning that the product is not just the software. At all. That's one part of the product. There's this concept called the whole product concept, where what you think you're selling is the bits or the service, but really you're selling that, plus you're selling the documentation, plus Mm -hmm. you're selling your website, plus you're selling your support, plus you're selling everything that you do, how clear your legal documents are, how Mm -hmm. easy it is to purchase, uh, how private you keep uh, people's data. Even uh, uh, what kind of brand do you give out? That's all part of the same. It's all the product. So we try to be approachable, be remarkably good at every single piece of output that we have. Uh, We treat everything like it's part of the product. Okay. And how do you get that value to go right through your team of 33 people? You know, you can't just say it and make it happen. it's, It's hard with so many people. It's definitely part of our culture. You know, at the beginning, it was just me. And so that, that was my sort of a way of working. And then it stayed uh, an important part of our culture where we try to take it to 11, whatever we do. You know, we have a checklist on our website called the Balsamic Marketing Checklist, uh, where we, we have a question where like, okay, this is great, but how can we take it one step for, further? How can we make this so good that people will copy this? And it could be about the EULA. It doesn't have to be about a blog post or a feature. It has to be, it's something that you think about, about everything you do. And it's not because we want to be like this. It's not for, for bragging rights. It's because we love the craft. Mm-hmm. We're doing this for the love of the craft. And so trying to aim to the very top is a good aim. You're not going to reach it every time. You're, not gonna reach, you're rarely going to reach it. But it's a great way to be. 
It's a great way to work because you're pushing yourself to get better all the time. So tell me this, Pelody. We have some listeners and some members on our community who have a product that maybe they've been running for a couple of years, but it's only reached maybe one or two or $5,000 in annual revenue, and they're having trouble getting any further. And the big problem they have is that almost no one's arriving at the website or discovering them. So if you're starting from scratch or in the early days, what advice would you give to somebody to take this type of philosophy you're describing in the beginning when it seems like they're talking to nobody, that they're just writing and it's going into the empty void? Often this is this happens because it's a developer turned entrepreneur, just like me, just like us. And, and I had this problem at the beginning too, uh, where you think marketing is a dirty word. You think it's all about pushing uh, messages people down people's throats. But I think that the, the hack is to consider marketing a feature. You know how to work on features. Okay, so now make this feature that will attract more people, you know. So, you know, give yourself deadlines, work on it like it's a feature, because it is. The website is a feature of your product. It's not a brochure. It's, you know, can they go from A to B? Can they understand what you're selling? Can they understand your unique value proposition? Work on positioning. Often the problem is positioning. You're trying to appeal to too many different kinds of people. You know, read April Dunford's books and really try, uh, you know, lower your ambition and understand when where you're really valuable. And you do this by talking to your best, <laughs> the few customers you have. Yeah. You ask them, why did you choose us? We're nobody. Nobody else is choosing us. Why did you choose us? And how can we find more people just like you? Right. And then they will, that's your sort of beachhead. And then once you, then you can expand the market later. But yeah, the, the, the feedback that I will give is like, stop coding because your product is probably plenty good. You just have to find who is it perfect for. But there are some cases where you got to give up because you chose a market that doesn't exist. Yeah. Or a market that you cannot reach with the kind of company you have. You know, that's a hard decision to make, right? But it's hard to differ between a product that no one actually wants and bad marketing. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I would advise people not to start a whole new category because that seems that's very expensive. (laughs) Wait, Um, didn't you start a whole new category? Not at all. Not at all. You want to find a place where there are at least a couple of companies that are doing okay Mm -hmm. because they're proving that there is a need for this. There is a market for this. And then you want to be better, better than them. Okay. I was early, but I was not the first. There were a, a couple of uh, products that were pretty crappy, but they've uh-huh. been they've been around for a couple of years, for a few years. Okay. So, how often do you personally, and not your team, but you, Paldi, talk to customers these days? I have an office hours program where once a week I set aside an hour of my time for anybody who wants to talk to me. Okay. How and, do people uh, find out about that and use that? It's linked on the website, and then uh, we talked about it in the newsletter, and we're going to do a blog post about it. But, but plenty of people uh, find it. So I talk to at least a customer an hour a week uh, through that program. And then other than that, I, uh, you know, I, I read some um, support cases sometimes. You know, Now we have a six-person support team, so it's not my job anymore. I shouldn't talk to customers anymore. Mm-hmm. We also have a user research team now 
with one person full time interviewing customers full time. And like so I read five the days a week now. or four days a week or something. I mean, there's there's definitely a bunch of time spent uh, getting the pipeline full. Mm. But now we have one person who's going to do that so that the other person can do more interviews. I found that in the early days when a product is very, how could we say, it does the fundamentals and not much more. And the people who sign up to become customers are doing so because despite the rough edges, they really want your product. I found those people just want to talk. They're so happy when you write to them and say, I don't mean to bother you, but I'd love if we could discuss why you're using it. I usually just do it via email because I still feel a little bit intrusive. And people just answer. They just answer and love to. Oh, they love it. They got on the train. They they bet on you, right? So, yeah. of course, they yeah. want you to be successful. We also have a Slack community for our customers, so we communicate that way. And in there, we have a group called VIPs, which is uh, uh, five or six people who we know will answer, will <laughs> drop whatever they're doing and answer any question mm-hmm. that we have. And so we, we rely on them. We will do more than that. We also now have a customer advo- av- advisory board. Uh, so it's a database of people who say, oh, whenever you're working on this kind of feature, let me know. And so that's someone we can, uh, a group that we can use for testing our designs before we implement them, for instance. Excellent. Hey, this is another thing I wanted to ask you about. It's kind of going back a little bit in the conversation, but it's always got my curiosity going about Balsamic. You describe Balsamic as a corner bistro or a cozy restaurant on the web. And I only really began to understand exactly what that meant when my life started to involve frequent visits to Italy. As you know, my partner is Italian. Tell us what you mean by that, a cozy restaurant on the web. I think it's mostly a way to position ourselves to show that we are a indie company. We're not a startup in the Paul Graham sense of the word, you know, the trying to scale uh, fast and quickly. Yeah. We're, we're on the other trying. side of the software industry. And so, you know, the restaurant or, you know, I always, my inspiration is the, fifth generation butcher down the street, you know, they do one thing and they do it with such passion and they've been doing it forever and they're the best in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a tiny thing, but it's always a pleasure going, interacting with them because they're such experts and they're so passionate and they, they, you know, exudes this love for this problem, even if it's a tiny problem. Right. Uh And that's, that's what we are about. We want to own a wireframing. You know, we want to be the best in the world at solving the wireframing problem. Not prototyping. That's too big. That's too much. Not interested. Just this tiny sliver, but super important. Someone has to solve this for the world. And it's going to be us. And it's a small company, but we have global reach. So the restaurant might not be the, the best analogy, but... There are some restaurants that, you know, people travel to go to them, you know. Right, right. But there's also like every, well, in Italy, for example, almost every small town just has a restaurant like what you described. It's just an excellent restaurant. Uh, it's not expensive, but the food's good. They have uh, take pride in the full presentation and the experience. They'll come and sit at the table and just chat to you for a while because they're exactly. just genuinely interested on how you doing and that's how we see our model and it's 
Not revolutionary. <laughs> not I like mean, you said, it's, it's been going on for generations. It's the normal. It, yeah. It's, it's yeah. how business works. The crazy thing is the Silicon Valley crap. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps the the ability for software companies to grow very quickly has warped our understanding of how to run a business somehow. Well, I mean, it's just, it's apples and oranges, right? It's like saying uh, all doctors do the same thing. No, there are some that do heart surgery and some that do bone uh, work. You know, like, yes, we all write code, but we're not the same. Moving on, I wanted to ask you more a, a coder's question. See, your background is as a coder, I understand. I imagine you don't do much coding these days. I uh, still do a little bit, not on anything important. The team won't let you? Yeah, that, I mean, the, the core product, I don't touch anymore. All my code was uh, thrown away with the big rewrite. I built, like, internal tools. The build system for our website, I mostly build, you know, there's always a uh, little uh, coding jobs that need to happen. And, and uh, so I do those uh, when I can. Okay. And you feel like your team embraces that or they kind of tolerate that Howard is doing some little coding exercise again? Uh, it depends. They understand I shouldn't really be doing it, but uh-huh. I am very fast. So they, <laughs> they, <Okay>. like, <laughs> they like when I do it. <laughs> this was a shock for me when I started running a... a a software company is that it's not all coding and it actually before too long there wasn't much coding I had time for and I never really got to terms with that because oh man losing myself in coding for a day this is like my perfect day and oh, if man. I do that then my business goes nowhere it's terrible it took me many years to give it up and in fact I always go back to it now I have I kept a little bit and I found a, a way where I can still do a little bit but it took me maybe five years, six years to wow. really stop. A lot of the times people start a company because they're like, oh, I don't want to deal with any of the politics of a large uh-huh. company. I'll just, uh, you know, start my own thing so I can code all day. Uh-huh. Well, I got bad news for you. <laughs> if you're a CEO, you should not be doing any coding. And I mean, if you want to code all day, get yourself a job at a better company where you can code all day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even when there's even just two or three people in the company, already it's at the point where you're not going to get much time coding, you know, because not only are you now still responsible for all these other things like sales and marketing and support, but you have to also manage, hire and manage. And yeah. It's terrible because the feeling is we got this far because I am such a good coder. Mm-hmm. And now you're asking me to, so that the company will lose a good coder and we'll gain a terrible manager because I've never <laughs> been a manager. How is this not going to kill the company, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's an advice that I would keep in mind. Like, if your problem is that you don't get enough time coding, starting a business is not the right answer. Uh, 100% agree. Hey, Paldi, you mentioned the big rewrite. So I'm vaguely aware of that as a long-term customer of, of Balsamic. You remember that Joel Spolsky essay, right? The things you should never do. He stated this, I'm going to read from my notes here. The single worst strategic mistake that any software can make is this, rewriting the code from scratch. Did you rewrite the code from scratch? We did. We did. And I absolutely agree with Joel. There is a tendency, which is very normal, for smart developers, senior developers, there's a tendency to want to throw it all away and redo it properly this time, right? Uh Just because it's frustrating to have this big spaghetti ball 
that you know it grew after uh, years and years. You just want to start from scratch because some people love that blue field, blue sky. You know, like I can architect a whole new thing. That's one of the things that is most thrilling about being a, a senior developer, right? So sometimes people want to do it just because of that, and so that's why I think Joel is saying that is absolutely the wrong reason to do a rewrite. If it works, don't touch it. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But nevertheless, you did a rewrite. Yes, sometimes you have to do a rewrite because we were built on a technology that was killed. And what technology was that, Felody? We were built in Flash, which was a fantastic technology that in many ways is still today ahead of what uh, HTML and JavaScript can do, even a decade after they decided to kill it, you know. And I miss it very much, but it was clear that it was dying. And so well ahead of, uh, of the deadline, we, we decided to, uh, that we had to get off of it. And so we did. So we rewrote the whole thing. And how was that experience? Pretty bad. <laughs> About as dramatic as you expected. We were lucky that it didn't kill the company uh, because we already had a bunch of momentum. And because, you know, we, we did it at the, at, I guess, at the right time. But it took uh, five years. No out way. Out a 12-year company, yeah. Five years. From the very beginning to the to the shipping, yeah. Wow. And during that, were you able to still do improvements on the old version? Or did you just say no? For the first three years, we had parallel teams. But we couldn't do too much on the old one because then we would have had to do it twice. Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine. Wow. I'm <laughs> just mind blowing. I had no idea. Five yeah, years. Yeah. You know, at the beginning, it was a two person team for a yeah. year or so. Then it became three, four, five. Then it became most of the company. For about a, a couple of years, we had one person on, our ex- on, on the product that we sold, just doing purely maintenance. And for, for a couple of years, if you came to our website, you would find a two year old version of the desktop app. And how were customers responding to that? Were they getting frustrated that their uh, requests for improvements seemed to be getting ignored? Or were you explaining to them what was happening? Yes. I mean, uh, our revenue went down two years in a row because uh, we were old and outdated. But in the meantime, we managed to uh, ship the new thing in batches. We have several versions of the app. We have desktop, we have SaaS, and we have some uh, add-ons. So we would ship the, the new thing in the smaller product so that, you know, we could test it out, make it better. And then when it was good, we would ship it on the bigger product. We, we left desktop last, but we shipped the web version, you know, a year before, before the desktop version. We were able to keep people engaged, but, but we, did, uh, we did go through a rough patch. Yeah. And how did you feel during that time? Not great, obviously. <laughs> It's an understatement, I suspect. I mean, it's a slog. It's a marathon. Mm -hmm. I do this because of the, I I love the challenges. I love learning new things. So even the ups and the downs are both interesting Mm -hmm. because what I'm motivated by is, okay, let's figure out this problem. Facing problems that I don't understand and and roll up my sleeves. That's what motivates me, so. Yeah, it, it was it was a bit rough, but we figured it out. It, it exposed some uh, problems that we had with our engineering practices. And so now we've uh, worked for about a year improving all of that. So now we're in a much better place. 
but we survived. Not only we survived, we're doing better than ever. Oh, congratulations. So given what you've learned from that experience, is there anything you would have done different before the rewrite or in the early days to kind of minimize this? Or is it inevitable just because the way technology adapted and moved on? Well, I mean, clearly you got to pick your horses to bet on very carefully. Pick your technology stack very carefully. It has to be the right amount of new so mm-hmm. that it's it has... Uh, you know, it's not outdated. You know, I wouldn't pick Java today, for instance, right? But it can't be too new because there's not, you know, it might not it might not gain traction. What you want is basically the biggest technology that works because you'll be able to find the most people to hire that know about the, that technology. It will have the most answers on Stack Overflow. You know, you want to gamble on, on a winner that is clearly a winner. So you started in 2008, if I recall, and I think at that time there was no sign that Flash was on the way out, right? I think Flash was doing really well then. Yeah, but shortly after there was the Steve Jobs letter that said we're not (laughs) going to do it, we're not going to add it to uh, iOS. Yeah, so I think that from the beginning it was clear that at some point we would have had to uh, get rid of it, but it it wasn't that obvious. Plus it took 12 years. You know, they just just a month, a couple of months ago, uh, yeah. fully discontinued. So we had we had plenty of time. But at the time, there was no alternative for me because JavaScript, did, the browsers did not have enough APIs to build uh, Balsamic. Yeah. They just couldn't. You, you just, it was that or, uh, or C++, uh-huh. uh, you know. Okay. Well, Pelody, I think we're running out of time. So let's wrap it up. Um, thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure. Anytime. Uh, I'd love to come and chat with you anytime. Well, we might have to take you up on that. Uh, where should people go if they want to get in touch uh, and learn more or maybe take advantage of these office hours concept that you were talking about? Uh, balsamic.com. Balsamic like the vinegar, but with a Q instead of a C at the end. And uh, tying back to your previous episode, we have a very active newsletter. Uh, uh, it's actually uh, the best way for us to communicate with our real fans we Uh call them our inner circle even though now it's more than 7,000 people that are signed up so that's where we give behind the scenes information uh, early access to things just like the office hours uh, program okay so they can just go to balsamic.com and and then you go company news uh, and then you you sign up for the newsletter okay just before we finish i just want to tell one little story and we're going to make the podcast about me and not you briefly i'm going to tell the story of how feature upvote started from design perspective so it was late 2016 i knew i wanted to do this Uh, i had a small team me and two other people and they both were on holiday for a week and i said it's a chance to sketch out my ideas for feature upvote the product i used was balsamic it was called Balsamic Mockups at the time, but it's now Balsamic Wireframes. Uh, I spent a week making up the different screens. The, the product today looks surprisingly like those screens back then. But then I did something that was a piece of advice. I'm pretty sure it came from you, Paldi, at a conference somewhere. I saved that file as Feature Upvote version 3. Then I went through the mockups and I deleted anything that I thought was not essential for version 1 anything, save that as version one. And that's how we got started. So I just wanted to you know, give you a bit of praise to say that Balsamic was an important tool for the beginning of Feature Upvote. That's now the company that brings in my income. 
So thank you. That's awesome. Uh, we'll share that story with the team because those are the things that keep us going. We, we love those stories. And that tip of considering a design version three is still a good one, I think. Our brain is not able to conceptualize version one and then two and three. It's much easier to go to do three, the full thing, and then cut back. Uh, the advice did me well. So it was you who said that, right? I, yeah, 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 yeah. Acknowledging the right person. Okay, well, let's, let's end it there. So, Pelody, thanks again and bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm. Bootstrapped.